Hi, my name is Lynn McTaggart. Welcome to my podcast, Living the New Science. In these first podcasts, I'm covering some extraordinary discoveries by frontier scientists and why this changes everything we think about how our world works and also how we should live our lives. Today, I want to talk a bit about how our brain works and why thoughts are not locked inside our heads, but are trespassers, which can affect the world out there. When we look at the world, we do so on a much deeper level than we realize. Our brain talks to itself and to the rest of the body, not with images or chemical impulses, but in the language of quantum waves and frequencies. We perceive an object by resonating with it, getting in sync with it. To know the world is literally to be on its wavelength. Think of your brain as a piano. When we observe something out there, certain portions of the brain resonate at specific frequencies. At any point of attention, the brain strikes certain strings of a specific length and frequency. This information is then picked up by the ordinary electrical chemical circuits of the brain, just as the vibrations of the strings eventually resonate through the entire piano. When you first look at something, certain frequencies resonate in the brain's neurons. These neurons send information about these frequencies to another set of neurons. This second set of neurons translates these resonances from wave interference information and sends the resulting information to a third set of neurons, which then begins to construct a pattern of molecules that eventually forms the image you see in front of you. This threefold process makes it far easier for the brain to correlate separate images easily achieved using wave interference shorthand, but extremely awkward with an actual real-life image. After seeing the image, the brain processes the information in a wave frequency shorthand and scatters these throughout the brain, rather like a local area network copying major instructions for many employees in the office. Storing memory as wave interference patterns is remarkably efficient. Waves can hold unimaginable quantities of data, far more than the 280 quintillion, that's 280 followed by 18 zeros, bits of information that supposedly constitute the average amount of memory we've accumulated during an average lifespan. It's been said that, with wave interference patterns, the entire U.S. Library of Congress, containing every book ever published in English, would fit into a large sugar cube. But as the late American neurosurgeon Carl Pribram discovered during a disgusting experiment with rats, he essentially destroyed their brains, and it harmed their motor skills but they still remembered a complex run they had been taught. That showed him that memory is stored outside the brain, out in the field. Our brains are essentially an antenna receiver, 
picking up information from the outside, picking up information from the field. In 1979, Russell and Karen Devaloy, a husband and wife team of neurophysiologists at the University of California at Berkeley, converted simple tartan and checkerboard patterns into quantum wave information and found that the brain cells of cats and monkeys responded not to the patterns themselves, but to their component quantum wave information. Countless studies recounted in the Devaloy's book, Spatial Vision, shows that numerous cells in the visual system are tuned to certain frequencies. Other studies by Fergus Campbell at Cambridge University in the UK and a number of other labs have also shown that the cerebral cortex of humans may be tuned to specific frequencies. Carl Pribram also found that the brain is a highly discriminating frequency analyzer. He showed that the brain has an envelope that limits the otherwise infinite wave information available to it so that we're not bombarded by the limitless wave information in the zero-point field at every moment. In his own studies, Pribram confirmed that the visual cortex of cats and monkeys respond to a limited range of frequencies. Russell Devaloy and his colleagues also showed that cortical neurons are tuned to a limited frequency range. And in studies of both cats and humans, Campbell has shown the same, that the brain's neurons respond to a limited band of frequencies. In Pribram's own studies of cats, in which he recorded frequencies from the motor cortex of cats while moving their right forepaw up and down, he discovered that, like the visual cortex, cells in the motor cortex responded to only a limited number of frequencies of movement. Through these experiments, Pribram and others have demonstrated that perception occurs at a much more fundamental level of matter, the netherworld of the quantum particle. We don't see objects per se, only their quantum information, and from this we construct our image of the world. Perceiving the world is a matter of tuning into the field. Quantum waves are described through a series of calculus equations called Fourier transforms, named after the French mathematician Jean Fourier, who developed these equations early in the 19th century to help Napoleon Bonaparte determine the optimal interval between shots of a cannon so that the barrel wouldn't overheat. Fourier's method was eventually found to break down and precisely describe patterns of any complexity into a mathematical language that is a kind of timeless, spaceless shorthand for the relationship between waves measured as energy. Any optical image can be converted into the mathematical equivalent of interference patterns when waves superimpose each other. These equations can also be used in reverse. You can take these components, representing the interactions of waves and their frequency, and reconstruct any image. 
Russian researcher Nikolai Bernstein filmed human subjects dressed entirely in black costumes on which white tapes and dots marked the position of the limbs, not unlike a Halloween skeleton costume. The participants were asked to dance against a black background while being filmed. When the film was processed, all that could be seen was a series of white dots moving in a continuous pattern or waveform. When Bernstein analyzed the waves, he discovered that all of the rhythmic movements could be represented in Fourier trigonometric sums to such an extent that he could predict the next movements of his dancers to an accuracy of within a few millimeters. The fact that movement can be represented formally in terms of Fourier equations means that the brain's conversations with the body might also be occurring in the form of waves and patterns rather than as images. The brain somehow can analyze movement, break it down into wave frequencies, and transmit this wave pattern shorthand to the rest of the body. Walter Schemp a mathematics professor at the University of Sagan in Germany, specialized in the mathematics of harmonic analysis or the frequency and phase of sound waves. In the 1980s, he decided to explore whether it's possible to extract three-dimensional images from sound waves. And by 1986, he'd published a book which mathematically proved how you could get such 3D image or hologram from the echoes of radio waves received in radar. Shemp thought that the same principles might apply to functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, a tool used to examine the soft tissues of the body. Taking pictures of the brain and soft tissues of the body with MRI is ordinarily a matter of getting to the nuclei of water molecules scattered throughout the brain. Because protons spin like little magnets, locating them is often most simply accomplished by applying a magnetic field. This causes the spin to accelerate to the point where the nuclei behave like microscopic gyroscopes spinning out of control. This makes them that much more conspicuous, enabling the MRI machine to locate them. As the molecules slow down, they give off radiation. What Shemp discovered is that this radiation contained encoded wave information about the part of the body being examined, which the machine can capture and eventually use to reconstruct a 3D image. With the use of Fourier transforms and many slices of the body, all of this information is combined and eventually turned into an optical picture. Shemp went on to revolutionize the construction of MRI machines and wrote a textbook on the subject. He showed that imaging worked as holography did and soon became the world authority on the machine and on functional MRI, a special form of the technology that allows you to observe brain activity in response to sensory stimuli. But he also began to wonder whether the mathematics and theory of how this machine worked could also be applied to biological systems. 
He had called his theory quantum holography because what he'd really discovered was that all sorts of information about objects, including their 3D shape, is carried in the quantum fluctuations of the zero-point field, and that this information could be recovered and reassembled into a 3D image. Shemp had proved as physicist Hal Putoff had first predicted, and I talked about him in early versions of this podcast, that the zero-point field was a vast memory store. Through Fourier transformation, MRI machines could take information encoded in the zero-point field and turn it into images. But the real question posed by Shimp went far beyond whether he could create a sharper image in MRI. What he was really trying to find out was whether his mathematical equations unlocked the key to the human brain. In his quest to apply his theories to this larger question, Walter came across the work of Peter Marser, a British physicist who'd worked at CERN in Switzerland. Marser himself had been doing work on a computation based on wave theory and sound, and was sitting there with a theory which he intuitively sensed could be applied to the human brain. In Marser's mind, Walter's machine worked on the same principle that Carl Pribram had worked out for the human brain, by reading natural radiation and emissions from the zero-point field. Not only did Walter have a mathematical map of how information processing in the brain might work, which amounted to a mathematical demonstration of the theories of Carl Pribram, but he also had, as Peter saw it, a machine which worked according to this process. Like Pribram's model of the brain, Shemp's MRI machine underwent a staged process, combining wave interference information taken from different views of the body and eventually transforming it into a virtual image. Although Walter had written some general papers about how his work could be applied to biological systems, it was only in partnership with Peter that he began to apply his ideas to a theory of nature and the individual cell. What they were beginning to realize was something that Pribram's work had always hinted at, that perception occurs at a much more fundamental level of matter, the netherworld of the quantum particle. We don't see objects per se, but only their quantum information, and out of them we construct our image of the world. Perceiving the world is a matter of tuning into the field, as I say. After making a number of these discoveries about quantum frequencies and the act of perception, Pribram wondered where this intricate process of wavefront decoding and transformation could take place. It then occurred to him that the one area of the brain where wave interference patterns might be created was not in any particular cell, but in the spaces between them. At the end of every neuron, the basic unit of a brain cell, are synapses where chemical charges build up, eventually triggering electrical firing to the other neurons. In the same spaces, dendrites, or tiny filaments of nerve endings wafting back and forth like shafts of wheat in a slow breeze, communicate with other neurons, sending out and receiving their own electrical wave impulses. 
These slow wave potentials flow through the glia or glue surrounding neurons to gently nudge or even collide with other waves. At this busy juncture, where a ceaseless scramble of electromagnetic communications between synapses and dendrites takes place, it is most likely that wave frequencies are picked up and analyzed, since these wave patterns are creating thousands of wave interference patterns at every moment. Pribram conjectured that these wave collisions must create the pictorial images in our brain. When we perceive something, it's not due to the activity of neurons themselves, but to certain patches of dendrites distributed around the brain, which, like a radio station, are set to resonate only at certain frequencies. It's like having a vast number of strings all over your head, only some of which vibrate as a particular note is played. Now here's a fun experiment devised by the famous British biologist, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, for dog owners to show that your thoughts are not locked inside your head. If you have a dog and he's close to you, get another loved one, your partner, family member, or good friend to be at home with the dog. You should be out, at work or elsewhere. At a random time, decide to start making your way home. At that point, text your at-home partner, who should watch the dog to see if and what time he heads toward the door. Come home and compare notes of the moment you decided to go home and when your dog headed to the door to wait for you. Do this again on other days, but make sure to vary the time you decide to head home. Always compare when you had the thought, I am going home now, and what your dog did. In Sheldrake's studies, in a majority of cases, the dog headed to the door at precisely the time that his owner just made the decision to go home, not when he actually left. More evidence that your thoughts are not locked up inside your head, but are trespassers sending out to the world and affecting it too. This is Lynn McTaggart helping you to live the new science. Keep listening, and I'll continue to give you information and tips each time about how to incorporate this new information into your life. And don't forget, just once a year, I offer intensive teaching on the keys to successful intention and the power of eight or group intention during a single year-long Power of Eight Intention Masterclass. It's a six-week webinar course, after which I place all the Masterclass members in Power of Eight groups to meet every week for an entire year under my ongoing supervision. You receive four more bonus webinars and weekly tips, guidance, and monitoring from me. You meet with your intention family regularly via Skype or Zoom and watch the miracles unfold. When we've monitored Masterclass members who attend these sessions religiously, close to 100% get positive results. This past year, my participants have overcome depression and many other chronic illnesses, had amazing financial windfalls, found dream homes and dream jobs, and much more. 
The doors to Masterclass 2020 are now open. To find out more or book your place, go to lynnmctaggart.com and follow the Intention Masterclass link. Mm-hmm.